Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today I'm really excited to be discussing uh, Murdoch in relation to music and singing and I've got two wonderful guests who have um, dedicated quite a good uh, quite a deal of thought actually to how music singing and the related arts appear uh, not just in the fiction but also in her life and indeed in her philosophy um, as as you may well know um, music singing singers opera and so much um, appears um, throughout her work and indeed stems from a lifelong love of, um, of music in, in so many different formats. Um, there's so much that we're going to be discussing today, uh, not, just, um, not just her work, but also her life, how she engaged with music and singing, her music collection that's in the archive at the University of Kingston, and so much more. My first guest and a returning guest to the podcast <coughs> is uh, Dr. Gillian Dooley. Hello, Gillian. Hello. Hello, thanks for coming back on. Gillian uh, has edited or co-edited three books by or about Iris Murdoch and she's best known uh, I think still uh, for uh, the wonderful uh, collection of interviews that she brought together um, from a tiny corner in the House of Fiction uh, which came out uh, a little while ago in 2003 still available I think still the uh, an absolute essential uh, for the Murdoch bookshelf. She also edited um, Murdoch's uh, letters um, to uh, the, uh, the philosopher Brian Medlin, uh, Never Mind About the Bourgeois, which came out in 2014. And um, her most recent work um, in conjunction um, with another, uh, another Murdoch scholar was uh, reading Iris Murdoch's Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, which came out in 2019 in Murdoch's centenary year. And in 2019, uh, she also presented keynotes at uh, Murdoch conferences in Europe and the UK. And she also organized a wonderful concert um, at the Murdoch Centenary Conference in Oxford in July and um, in March last year in 2020 she organised Iris Murdoch 101, a seminar and concert in Australia and she's currently writing a book on music and sound in Murdoch's fiction so absolutely essential as you can imagine that we had to get her on and she's very kindly agreed to be here so I'm really pleased um, that she's with me today. Also joining me is Ellen Svenby, hello Ellen. Hello, Marlon. Hello, it's lovely to be, uh, lovely to, uh, to uh, be with us today. Um, Ellen's uh, in Norway today, um, and um, and Gillian's in Australia, so it's a, a real um, worldwide um, event. This podcast. Um, she worked for a long time at the most northern university in the world at Tromsø, and in 2019, uh, Ellen published the first book on Iris Murdoch's fiction and philosophy in Norwegian. And currently, um, she's writing the introduction to a translation of *The Sovereignty of Good* that's also um, being written in Norwegian and she's um, bringing Murdoch to a whole new audience uh, which is wonderful and both Ellen and Gillian have been involved in the Murdoch Society and related events uh, for 15 years or more um, so uh, it's great to have them both on the podcast today with me. Uh, Gillian um, let's start with you I think uh, could you introduce us to Murdoch and, and, and um, her engagement with the music perhaps her, her life and then we'll think about how it's, um, it figures in the work. But I think let, let's start with the life and, and a bit of general introduction uh, to the topic. Yes, well, um, Iris Murdoch enjoyed music in what she herself called an untutored way. Um, she said to, uh, in an interview in 1962, she said, I know very little about music. I like to hear the few things I know over and over again I have no intellectual grasp of music and it attacks my emotions directly. Tears will run, roll down my cheeks at, at practically any piece of music. It affects me with a sort of desolation. This shows I don't really understand it. Um, there's sort of, uh, there are hints that kind of belie that rather. Um, for example, in The Nice and the Good from 1968, she, uh, you know, two characters, discuss Opus 127 without any um, further information. And, and it takes a bit of a musical aficionado to know that that is a Beethoven string quartet, one of his late string quartets and, and you know, all what that means. So um, I, I have a feeling that she, she knew more than she would like to sort of admit, um, perhaps because she was, she was surrounded by people who knew you know, knew huge amounts about music. Oxford, I think, was a very, very musical uh, musical society, um, it still is. Um, and uh, there were probably rather dauntingly, you know, expert people all around her. And she didn't want to sort of set herself up as, a, <laughs> as an expert. Um, 
and um, so, but she had a, the, the, there is a, a collection of her music, uh, you know, music from her um, Oxford home in the Kingston University archive. Um, and it, um, you know, obviously you, you, you never know how complete or, you know, representative a, a, a music collection that's left behind by someone is really. Um, so, it, but it, you know, it gives us some, a bit of an idea of what she might've done herself. A good deal of it is uh, sort of sentimental songs from the twenties and thirties. And she often mentions them too, when she talks about singing, she says, you know, we used to sing those lovely old songs around the piano with her mother, the, 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 uh, the, the popular songs of the, the 1930s, which is so much, so much better than what counts as popular music today in the 80s or whatever. Um, so I, I suspect a lot of that, those songs belong to her mother, Irene, who, was, who really was a, apparently a serious singer. Um, some of them, in fact, have her name on them. Um, and uh, there are a few volumes of part songs in the collection, like um, the Handel School Songbook and Eight Madrigals by English Composers, these early sort of mid 20th century editions of these things um, for set for sort of female voices, uh, girls choir, and presumably left from her, you know, dating from her school days. Um, one item that stands out is the Left Songbook, uh, published by the Workers' Music Association and the Left Book Club Musicians Group. Um, and that book is inscribed Iris Murdoch Party Summer School, July 1939. So that gives us a little bit of a snapshot of where she was politically, musically and, um, and socially, I suppose, in uh, 1939. Um, she also had uh, several books of Irish songs in her, in her music library, probably from her mother. Um, there's Ireland's Best Songster, The Beauties of Erin, The Songs of Percy French, and uh, or she, she had the Anglo-Irish Orange Songster, as well as the Republican Soldiers Songbook which is subtitled Stirring Spirited Songs of the Soldiers Who Fought for the Honour and Freedom of Ireland in Every Generation. So that's sort of a bet both ways, really, um, both the, uh, the orange and the green or the red and the green. Um, and um, and the, perhaps the most personal part of that music collection is a series of handwritten, handwritten notebooks titled Make a Joyful Noise. I mean, so she, she titled them make a joyful noise. Uh, and they contain the words of a miscellany of favorite songs, often annotated with the friend's name. And um, these notebooks show that Murdoch had an active interest in collecting songs and um, sharing them with, with her friends, which I think is, is a rather lovely uh, thought really, isn't it? That mm. um, music was that sort of part of her life. Um, so, um, you know, there's, a, there's a, um, nearly 200 items in that, in that archive. So there's quite a lot. There's, you know, there, there, are, there are areas from the marriage of Figaro, which we know was very important to her um, in, you know, in, in various relationships that she had with people. Um, there's, there's all sorts of, uh, there's French songs, there are Italian songs, um, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole real, there's a whole mixture. Um, it's not, it's not really the, the collection of a, what, what sort of, perhaps what you might say, call a serious musician. Um, I don't think she ever learned to read music. I believe that she was um, not um, qualified to join the choir in Oxford because she couldn't read music well enough to do so um so um and I think, I think she was a bit unhappy about she that. was yes yeah <laughs> yeah um but um but you know she 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 enjoyed music she enjoyed listening to music um and she clearly from the novels knew uh knew a lot you know knew quite a lot about music and was was able to use music to, to deploy music in a in a in a way that 
that was um, was really quite um, meaningful. You know, different composers would have different sort of connotations mm. to to uh, different characters. So, and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, she writes in her, uh, I think, letters and I think the, the journals as well that uh, of, of music, and also and, and yes. mentions more contemporary artists as well, doesn't she? To her own I time, I think, so. in the 1960s. Yeah. Yes, yes, I think the, the, yeah, Beatles, the Beatles figure. Yeah, they do, yes. <laughs> and I think she went to see the Rolling Stones as well, didn't she, at one point? Did she? Yeah. So, uh, yes, yeah, I think it's one, one point, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, she, she had a, an interest not just in sort of classical and, and, pop, and classical music and also popular classics of the early 20th century, but also yeah. of, her own, yes. of her own time as well. And she even, you know, created a, a, a couple of, um, you know, rock pop groups, I think, in her... Yeah. Um, the word child. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Of course. I think we're going we're gonna to come on to those a little bit later on. Um, Ellen, should, I, should we bring you in at this point? Because I think what people might might know is that they, of course, you know, uh, music and singing, especially, um, is important to the novels. Um, and so they would think, yeah, well, of course, it's going to be important to the life. But they wouldn't think at all that it's related to the philosophy. They would have seen those as very separate ventures. But perhaps you mm -hmm. could explain just uh you know the, the the importance of these elements within the her philosophical work i can make a try <laughs> uh, because this is rather new to me too i had the great pleasure of uh, reading Gideon's manuscripts and um uh it really uh, invited me to think about her philosophy related to that uh, when I read Murdoch's novels, I always listen to the music mentioned in, the, in YouTube. And that is often out of uh, ignorance because I don't know what she talks about, uh, but also great amusement um, and never critically as Eugenia has done. So that's the difference between us, I think. But as a short introduction, I prepared some quotes on music from the novels coupled to hints in her philosophy then. And I have focused on Plato and Schopenhauer. That's and that fine. is not so strange because that is what two of her very uh, important philosophers that you can also see from the metaphysics as a guide to morals. Uh, and um, as Mariette Williamson has also uh, written a chapter about Schopenhauer in uh, the book that came out in uh, 2019, reading metaphysics as a guide to morals. It's a very good chapter. Uh, and I also uh, looked up uh, my old uh, good friend, Frederick Copleston and his history of philosophy, because he writes also very good about Schopenhauer, I think. I don't know Schopenhauer as well as Plato, but I'm beginning to really want to get deeper into that. Okay, <clears throat> I think I should start then with Plato. Um, and an unofficial rose from 1962 where the narrator tells us that Miranda Pernet's Australian cousin, Penn Graham, who is in love with her, he glides along and he says, in tune with the music of the spheres. Later in the same novel, Miranda's mother, Anne Pernet, feels as if she is haunted and mocked by a music of happiness which came from some inaccessible elsewhere. These quotes, I think, are well suited to shed light on and discuss in relation with what Murdoch comments on in Metaphysics, chapter 13, about Plato's theory of recollection, anamnesis, in his dialogue, Mino. And in this light, we could wonder if not both Penn and Anne would have been able to compose music, since, we can read there, the creative artist attends to the dark something out of which he feels certain he can, if he concentrates and waits, elicit his poem, picture, music. It is as if he remembered it or found it waiting for him, veiled but present. I think that is a really good quote mm. uh, that could shed light on many other uh, places in her novels too. Uh, so it's just a um, um, sort of a, an introduction to that. And then let's turn to Schopenhauer. In The Unicorn from the year after 1963, the so-called unmusical Marianne Taylor felt that Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata was like one long cry of agony. 
Yet when she two pages later listens to Dennis Nolan's exceedingly beautiful tenor voice, she thinks that nothing is more beautifully and acceptably self-assertive than good singing. And here I think we're rather close to Schopenhauer, both to his metaphysics and to his moral theory indeed, where music plays a part as an oasis in his otherwise gloomy philosophy and a possible start for an ethics of sympathy and compassion. Um, Murdoch calls uh, Schopenhauer a nasty metaphysician. I'll come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> the mentioned Marian Taylor is definitely not a composer, but Marcus Waller in The Message to the Planet at least wished he could compose music. I'm also reminded of Schopenhauer when Morgan, Talis Brown's former wife in a fairly honorable defeat from 1970, says that her feeling about Talis was like one's feeling about animals that awful sort of naked pity and distress. Why is an animal's pain so piercing, she asks, and adds, some music affects one like that too. It's awful. Frederick Coppelson on discussing Schopenhauer says, if it were possible to express accurately in concepts all that music expresses without concepts, we should have the true philosophy. And then we can think about Marcus Waller again, who tried to find the universal language. Maybe that is music. While Murdoch rather suggests that music is the most powerful and highest of all arts. Tragedy, the supreme poetical art, but music is not expressing ideas. For the reason to grasp, it is acting directly upon the will that is the emotions of the hearer. And Murdoch is admitting though that Schopenhauer was right to treat music as a special case. That is from metaphysics. So I'll end this short intro with Charles Araby's ambivalence, ambivalence is that, in the CDC, 1978. On the one hand, he wonders whether he hears, he hears the music of the spheres when he is uh, lying outside and looking up at the st night stars. We might dare to call that the platonic perspective. And on the other hand, he feels that music is mysterious because it has the power to conjure up complex and unresolved emotions from the past. That was a quote from your manuscript, Julia. The Schopenhauerian perspective. So we can say that to escape the slavery of the will in Schopenhauer is two different ways, through art, and through the radical act of self-denial, not suicide, but developing our compassion. And just a comment on Aris Murdoch's calling Schopenhauer's metaphysics nasty. I think that is because she says uh, with Cobbleson to believe that we are inborn good or bad, what Schopenhauer thinks means that only some of us have the possibility to develop goodness or virtue in a disinterested love of others. And she would, with her platonic um, criticism of that, would say that it would make a difference between people that she would not accept, I think. So that's my, my intro. Plato, Schopenhauer, both can be used. <laughs> Uh, discussing parts of novels. So we'll yeah, come back that, to that's discussing fascinating and, um, and, and links that um, that's <coughs> fascinating and links that I'd, I'd, I'd never really made before. And, and um, I imagine that chimes with some of the ideas that you've been working on um, for your new book, Gillian. Um, yes, although although I'm I'm sort of grubbing around in the particulars rather more than than that. Um, so. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, I um, so I, I have some. You know, I could I could sort of go through and, and talk about um, some of the some of the examples the, of the way she uses music. Um, yeah, that'd be lovely. In the novels, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I think um, it's, it's interesting. I think for our listeners to see um, to see how her her work sort of progressed in that way, and, and whether you think that actually. She uses music for particular narrative purposes. I mean, because she's uh, she was 
well known as an intertextual writer and, and her novels, of course, are enriched by works of art in other forms, painting, sculpture, and um, of course, music. Um, but, you know, the painting and the sculpture, I think, have been much more uh, noticed because that was uh, an avowed interest of hers uh, more than music. Um, but um, she does say, to, she did say to Geoffrey Myers in her interview, um, painting appears more frequently than music in the novels because I know far more about painting than about music. She says, the only music mm. which tends to appear is singing, which I know about because of my mother. But nevertheless, I have counted um, 175 separate pieces of music, uh, including not only songs, but also many other musical works referred to specifically in her novels. Wow. As well as, as, well as composers and musical genres which contribute in various ways to their to the novel's sort of overall flavor as, as she talks about it. Um, sometimes named musical works or genres or composers are connected with particular characters and sometimes types of music form part of the description of a specific time and place. Uh, dance music seduces in Bruno's dream and it's essential to that complicated and brilliant opening scene in the book and the brotherhood, you know, in the in the yeah. grounds of the Oxford <clears throat> College. Uh, and recorded or broadcast music is often overheard, heard or overheard, causing uh, irritation, pleasure, comfort or unease, you know, yeah. so it can be, you know, it can be, <clears throat> depends on the, it depends so much on the, the person, the listener, the hearer. In, uh, you know, the hearing character. Um, I mean, in, in Henry and Cato, um, Lucius Lamb, that rather solitary and pathetic chap, finds solace in listening to the music of Bach, um, which kind of endows him uh, by association with the, the vestige of the dignity that he's, he's all but lost elsewhere in his life. On the other hand, to Dora Greenfield in The Bell, um, bark is just hard patterns of sound which plucked at her emotions without satisfying them. Um, oh. And she dislikes music in which she couldn't participate herself by singing or dancing. Um, so using the well-known music of um, J.S. Bach as a reference point, Murdoch provides a perspective on each of these characters um, and helps the reader place them both intellectually, socially and emotionally. Um, I mean, Dora, uh, I, must, I must hasten to add, does come to um, enjoy the music of Mozart by the end of the book. Um, she doesn't quite come at Bach, but she, 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 gets, she, she gets to like Mozart. It's part, of, develop, it's part of the course. developmental sort of stages that she goes through, isn't it? In the uh, yes, indeed. In the novel, um, yeah. Of course, you can dance to Mozart and you can dance to Bach too, if you if you. Um, but you know there we go um, and of course gender and sexuality often feature in these musical interactions and power plays um, and uh, in the good apprentice Harry Kuno's mother had to give up playing the piano one of a long long line of Murdoch's women who deny a part of themselves to please or appease their husbands um, in The Sea, The Sea, um, Aunt Estelle's love for the jazz standards of the 1920s haunts Charles Araby. Mm. And his now dead lover, Clement Macon, had <laughs> loved Wagner, whom Charles admits he envies despite his professed dislike of music. Um, so, you know, these are some examples of how uh, attitudes to music and musical taste can play a significant part in the construction of her people as individuals. Um, and uh, it's also, also she uses music, um, musicianship and particular composers or musical works in many of her novels to evoke or intensify a particular atmosphere or to hint at narrative mysteries. Um, the Time of the Angels is a fascinating example because it's absolutely pervaded with the orchestral music of Tchaikovsky. Mm. Uh, and, and Tchaikovsky doesn't appear any, in any of the other novels, really. Um, so, but it, it's, it's, it, it really, it's, it seeps in. Um, but well, it seeps can I ask a question, Julia? 
Yeah. Can I ask a question? Uh, because sure. how do you how would you interpret that she used this Tchaikovsky for this awful Carol? <laughs> um, <clears throat> Why is it Tchaikovsky that he loves the swan well, dance? And yeah, dancing? I, I think uh, you know. I well, there's <laughs> there's there's quite a lot in it, really, because the, you know that those those the the ballets that that. Um, that yeah. he particularly plays on his on his um, on his gramophone um, are very uh, you know they're based on sort of fairy tales and 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 you know rather sinister fairy tales. He uses the music to to communicate. We we can see how he uses that music to communicate with Patty without having to talk to her, and yeah. Patty, uh, you know, Patty. Yes, because they can hear the music. She can house, hear the music, yeah. and and if you know if 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 he's aware that she's done something that he approves of, he will yeah. put the Nutcracker on put the on right, the, on, the yeah. on the gramophone, and she will hear mm. it downstairs and think, mm. "Oh, thank goodness, oh, he's not cross with me." Um, yeah, so they communicate through it. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 quite a fascinating uh, way of using of way way of using music. Um, and of course, I mean, Tchaikovsky, well, why Tchaikovsky? Mm. I mean, Tchaikovsky is a wonderful, wonderful composer. I, there's, there's sort of, you know, sometimes there's a bit of snobbery about him, but he is a, a fabulous composer and, and it's very, very, um, you know, music is full of anguish and full of yearning um, and passion and, um, you know, as well as gaiety and 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 um, you know pathos. So I, you know, I think there's an awful lot in it. You could you could just sort of read the time of the angels with the soundtrack of the of the music sort of playing right. and and yeah. get, and and you know get a whole new um, uh, you know it angle make on a it. Film. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also music's a constant presence in the nice and the good as well. It, it, to, to quite different effect. Um, it's rarely described in the narrative, but it's often discussed. It's, in fact, it's often switched off. You know, Willie Cost is yeah. loves loves music, um, and but he almost is almost always described as having to switch it off when one of his friends comes to visit. You know, because the the friend doesn't like Don Duquesne, doesn't like music. Uh, Theo. Gray is um, is upset by music and you know doesn't want to listen mm. to it even though he he knows a lot about it and understands it. So um, there's this sort of not being able to share music with other people, which is what part of Willie's pain, I think, in 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 that novel. Um, and it's and of course there's the lovely young Barbara Gray who plays the flute, and she keeps wanting to play the flute to Willie, but Willie's you know, uh, he's he without confessing it. Of course, he's in love with young Barbara, and you know it's totally inappropriate. And he's 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 very rightly reticent about it. But he, um, but she, you know, he keeps saying, "No, no, Barbara, you you can't play the flute for me," you know, because that would be too much for him. He has to sort of push her away, her music away. So. You know that that's just a couple of examples um, of 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 music. Um, there's there's a lot about singing as well, which um, I might talk about a little bit later. It's it's a sort of a whole whole other subject. Um, but um, yes, I think no, that's I think, just a few ideas of of, yeah. of sort of non singing music. Mm, no, I think we'll, we'll definitely come on to the, the singing in a little while. It's interesting, I think, Gillian, that the two examples you picked out there from the time of the angels and um, and also from the nice and the good are connected with pain and trauma and repressed repressed emotion especially for William yeah. and, and, and the connection with his um, his his previous life but also I think yes. the, the entrapment of Patty within the rectory as well and yes, um, certainly yes. earlier on if we think about um, the, the music and the, the the singing particularly that we see in, in under the net which is used for comedic purposes and, and joyful mm. joyful purposes and we do see quite quite a number of references to music creating joy and, and yet also I think maybe even in, in the unicorn, for example, how, how music is used in quite a sinister way. So it's interesting. Oh, goodness, that, yes. Yeah, yes. So we'll probably come back to that in a minute. Um, mm. But it's interesting mm -hmm. how she uses 
music to sort of delineate different emotion heightened or delineate different emotional states within the novels and i think and that, I, I, that picks yeah. up to the ear of the reader ellen do you want to comment on um, yes what Gillian because was, um, i was thinking about under the net and um i saw for me uh jake uh, listening to anna from in the radio uh mm. i i um when he understands <laughs> maybe that uh, she's an individual in her own right. And mm. he's so just so happy that she sings on the radio. Uh, yeah. I find that so, such a lovely place. But no, I, I was thinking about um, this quote I had from, uh, from the um, unicorn, Gillian, if you had something to say or Miles as well. Uh, when Mar Marianne is listening to Dennis, I'm very much uh, fond of Dennis Nolan. Um, his exceedingly beautiful tenor voice. And she, or the narrator, comments, nothing is more beautifully and acceptably self-assertive than good singing. Um, I'm thinking about that in connection with Murdoch's uh, self, selfish and unselfishing. No? So, could you elaborate a bit on that? I mean, acceptably self-assertive. That is something <laughs> else than to be selfish. <laughs> that's really, that's right? really interesting because, yeah. you know, then you find um, that 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 is a beautiful quotation. I, I you know, mm. I, <laughs> I love that one. Um, but then you come to, um, you know, to to, to Charles Araby saying, um, "All singers are vain." Yeah. Um, and uh, you know they they their 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 open mouths and their teeth showing and they're just oh. trying to entrap their listeners and and um, and uh, you know it's all sort of part of um, you know two two sides of the same coin. But and and with Charles, there's there's all that you know the mixture of his his early sort of. Um, his attraction no doubt to his his vivacious american aunt who used to sing mm -hmm. um jazz songs to him and he he would then go home and try and sing the jazz song to his parents his rather dour parents to uh, and amuse them and they would just uh, not be amused that's also that uh, he doesn't care much about music he says he doesn't um, like yeah. he, does, he yeah. doesn't like yeah. music he says not Noise, yes. Music, no. Yes, music, no. Yeah. Um, but but that that's one thing that the three, the, those three, um, you know, egotistical narrators from those middle period novels all have in common. Mm. Hillary, mm. Hillary Bird, um, Charles Araby, and and Bradley Pearson all say they don't like music. They also they dislike music, and it's it's never that simple. You know, it's it's uh, that's always. No, when it's it comes to Bradley, to... he 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 also likes music. He says he loves music too. So yeah, I think that is also uh, yeah. He both does and yeah. doesn't. Mm. Yes, that that that's right. That that you know you can't obviously they're they're very unreliable narrators. All all three of them. Yeah. Yeah, but um, and Brad, and. I mean, I, I thought about this um, moment in the Black Prince when uh, Julian has invited yeah. Bradley to go to listen to the Rosen Cavalier. And he says, yes. I wasn't listening to the music, I was undergoing it. Yes. And then he throws up and yes, uh, yes. yes. I said, it's just I one. That, that... Yeah, and there, then, um, uh, that description of the of the the the, um, the duet from the Rosen Cavalier is is the most wonderful description of of, of Strauss opera that, that I can mm. imagine really. Um, mm. Can I read it out? Yeah, I'd love <laughs> yeah. to. I really do that, would. Do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he, he 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 writes the sound of women's voices singing is one of the bitter sweetest noises in the world, the most humanly piercing, the most terribly significant and yet contentless of all sounds. And a duet is more than twice as bad as a single voice. 
The two women were conversing in pure sound, their voices circling, replying, blending, creating a trembling silver cage of an almost obscene sweetness. I did not know what language they were singing in and the words were inaudible anyway. There was no need of words. These were not words, but the highest coinage of human speech melted down, become pure song, something vilely, almost murderously gorgeous. No doubt she is crying for the inevitable loss of her young lover. The lovely boy protests, but his heart is free. Only it has all been changed into a sort of plump, luscious, heart-piercing cascade of sugary agony. <laughs> oh God, not much more of this can be endured. <laughs> That's great. It's wonderful. That's just one. <laughs> it is. Mm. And you also included there, uh, if I'm included there, her overwhelmingly use of adjectives. Yeah. Many adjectives. <laughs> yes. But, never, yeah. You can never have too many adjectives. No, you can't. It's phenomenology. But I, I think it's uh, also uh, when um, when I think about Schopenhauer and this attacking emotions directly. That is what happens to to um, Bradley Pearson when he was undergoing yeah. the music. And he also says that he he was he had the full yearning of his heart and it was flowing automatically out of my eyes and soaking my waistcoat. <laughs> so that is in the same connection, I think, that Bradley says to Julian to an unrego and quickly do. And he, he was yes. yeah, and uh, yeah, the, I think there's a lot to find in the Black Prince, really. And this yes. um Arnold Baffin has two big stereo loudspeakers. So, and I think there we also find a, an allusion to to a melody. Um, when he's trying to calm Rachel, when she has almost killed Arnold, um, Valley Pearson says, "It's just one of those things." Did you notice that? Oh yes. Yes. Alluding yes. to the Cole Porter melody yeah. from 1935. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I'm especially looking for the jazz when I'm reading. So yeah. I, I wonder, do you, do you both think that um, the way that Murdoch uses music is very much tied into this question of um, attending to the individual? Um, you know, the, 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 mm -hmm. the, this um, philosophical position that she uh, sort of um, takes on from, from Simone Weil. And for somebody like Brad, um, for Bradley Pearson or Charles Araby, um, or um, any any of her kind of um, enchanter figures or her kind of dangerous um, dangerous male male figures, mm -hmm. that actually their their kind of um, their difficulties with music is that is part of her trying to work through this question about attention and attending to particular people, but also attending to how music can affect people. Yes, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, and you know, be, to be to be open. And Bradley, at the end of the Black Prince, um, learns. You know, with Loxius in his prison cell, is um, mm. you know learning music. That they're listening to music together, and and he starts learning about music. Um, properly um, with Loxius and Loxius of course is Apollo who is the ultimate musician um, so um, and there's all sorts of you know there the, there are huge amounts of resonances there with um, with the the flaying of, of Marcius and mm. and all those all those um, those kind of um, um, illusions so and, uh, yes, it's it's, it's yeah. huge, yeah. And it also says that without these defenses, <clears throat> sorry, art and music, men sink to beasts. It says. Mm. <clears throat> so music has a really high position. Um, yeah. Schopenhauer says that the, the greatest uh, of the poetic arts is tragedy, but the greatest art is music. Right. So he yeah. points also to that. 
And uh, I was also thinking about uh, this um, Apollo ending or Loxias uh, when they talk about music here. And uh, Bradley says that the creator of form must suffer formlessness. Um, um, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think about this uh, attending to the universal, I think. Or attending to the yeah, and, and how great art, but uh, great, great great music being so um, immediately accessible, I suppose, can can point the way to the ineffable towards the good. Yeah, yeah, and it's both yeah. attending to the individual that you said, Miles, but I think it's also attending to the universal. Um, I would argue. Sure. That. So, like a, a bridge between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, like a tra transcendental, or transcendent transcendence. Well, that that, yeah. that really interests me because I wanted to yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about singing, but also particularly about group singing because I think that's really important in Murdoch's yeah. work. Mm. We we get that in the post office and under the net, and then of course yes. right the way towards the end of her career, we get the, the these group this group of men and the message to the planet who have been yeah. In, yeah. in the past the four men the four men mm -hmm. who've been singing yes. and, and of course one of, and and one of them is missing. We kind of we get a, a missing element to the music. Yeah. Yes. Would like, one of you like to talk a little bit about group? Prep? We'll, we'll go on to individual singing in a minute, I think. But I think group singing is really yes. important to, to think about this, and also how for those two for those two ba um, to balance out, and also how it's seen within in some of her other fictions, um, for example, um, Word Child, uh, Word Child. It's actually quite homosocial, and whether yeah. there's some yeah. whether there's a comment in there to be yeah. made. Gillian, do you want to start with yes. that? Yes, absolutely. Yes, um, yes. The, that devastating line which is a throwaway line on the page two of the message to the planet. Of course, they didn't let the women sing. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And Ellen wrote, a, Ellen gave a wonderful paper on, on that, um, on that line. Um, which conference was it, Ellen? Was it 2012? Uh, um, yeah, might have been that, but I couldn't yeah. <laughs> answer. I couldn't dance. I couldn't find the answer. So I <laughs> ended by that was still a mystery. And right. then you well, picked it up. I think up. I've kind yeah. of burrowed down um, and, uh, and it says they didn't let the women sing, but there were mm. four, there are these four men um, and, um, and I, I was kind of burrowing down into this. And, and this is what I'm finding I'm doing quite a lot with this, with this project is I'm, I'm getting I'm going in, but so this 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 um, character Gildas Hearn, who mm. who doesn't seem like a very major character, but when you start looking for him and when you start reading the message to the planet, he pops up at the, all the most important <laughs> yes. places, and he's mm. and he's observant, and he's the one who gets what's going on. He's the one who understands it. Um, he's a rather, in a way, he's a kind of sinister character, but he's an Anglican choir master. Yeah. And in the Anglican tradition, uh, it's boys choir, you know, men, men and boys are the, the yes. choristers. Um, you know, there are counter tenors singing alto and the boys singing soprano and, and you know, basses and tenors. So it's not a, it's sort of part of the tradition that women don't sing in. Anglican church choirs. I mean, that's changing. It's changed, I think, probably now. Um, a lot of the time, although there are still traditional choirs. But so, um, you know, I, I sort of burrowed around and, and uh, found that really, it's really not the other three who care about women singing. It's Gildas, who, who as it's an smart. Anglican yeah. choir master, you know, thinks and, and also, you know, there's a lot of homosociality and also homoerotic um, desire in that novel, which is suppressed and, and, and not, um, you know, not, not, not admitted. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's, there's, there's quite a lot there when you start looking at the, mm. looking at the music that they make, um, the songs they sing and, um, you know, the the particular hymns they sing and that sort of thing it's 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 quite interesting thinking about miles's question because uh, <clears throat> uh, what i found it was not so much but i i found that uh, they were singing um the 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 old psalms 
that they all loved mm, yeah. uh, before they parted. And then they also sang soldier songs before they parted. And um, uh, I think that's a mm. great difference because uh, the soldier songs are for, you know, for the men and uh, the Psalms are more for, for God or for religious purposes. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, and when we went to school in my school days, we always started the day with a song. Uh, and then the teacher didn't have to say, now we're starting. We just we had a song and, you know, like workers. Um, uh, when they uh, get together for uh, an election or. Uh, yeah, they come together in the union, they sing. Uh, why do they do that? It creates unity, right? Mm, and I think yeah. that's also one of the perspectives on these four men that they are creating. They are having their brotherhood. <laughs> yes. Unity. Um, yeah. That's um, single that, song we love. Yeah. Songs we love. That, um, yeah. That, that, that kind of... Um, you know the, the the exclusion of the women is and and you know yeah. and there's a there's a rather heartbreaking quote from franca um mm. the jack jack shearwater's wife um uh, when she you know said well it's not a quote from her but it's you know she said you know she she uh, she can't find harmony really it's only superficial you know in her life music music um, is not a is not a unifying or a, you know it's it's more an, something that cuts yeah, her yeah yeah excludes her and um, yeah so mm. um, so it's us yeah. against them yeah mm. yeah but mm -hmm. you know this is quite this can be quite different with with other you know in other novels it, it has quite different significance um, the group singing in the sea the sea is interesting as well isn't it yeah. Mm. Uh, everybody um, because, joins in <laughs> yeah. except charles except charles yeah you're right except charles and charles lizzie, feels excluded lizzie sings voike sapeta i think in um the sea the sea doesn't she no no uh, um tommy uh, lizzie sings yeah lizzie lizzie sings voike uh, sapeta yeah yeah and he 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 loves that but the the mm -hmm. the um the the young boy um um the, titus. the son of titus, titus thank you yeah. mm -hmm. uh, the son of um uh, hartley and ben um yeah. Yeah. He, she, he he sings and gilbert sings and um um other other characters who come and mm -hmm. visit all sort of create this singing club and they and they sing everything almost aggressively <laughs> yeah. and that's what yeah. that's when he's saying that's when he says all these things about singers being vain and, and aggressive and yeah and he banishes them out of his house mm -hmm. and he, yeah. they have to sing outside and mm -hmm. um and and he feels he's he feels excluded and you know there's a there's a there's a part in the message to the planet too where ludens feels excluded when um when when some of the women are and and also Patrick are singing madrigals without him, yes. even though they enjoy, ask him to join. He sort of feels excluded. So, um, so mm -hmm. the, yeah, there's 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 all sorts so of it can all, um, work both ways. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Julian, from from your the research that you've undertaken, are there any novels that have no reference to music or no reference to singing at all that are completely where, where um, you know uh, uh, this is completely absent and why, yeah well if there are why why do you think that might be um <laughs> the, the one novel that is surprisingly almost without a sound world or you know what you might call a sound world at all oh. even even a sort of even no other noises that you know apart from singing or music um is uh, the um the severed head there's very little uh, sort of sound in that mm. even silence is hardly ever mentioned so it's it's it, that's interesting because it's another first person narrative um isn't it um and maybe that says something about martin lynch given that he's not 
he's not he's not a listener you know perhaps um you know he's not sort of his ears aren't open to the world um i don't know i mean i haven't i i, I think that's a whole subject which i i you know i, I perhaps you know one day might pursue but it's it's sort of um not i haven't gone there yet not yet but it, it's an interesting thought yeah yeah. So as you say, so no music, no singing, and as you say, little signs, almost like a, a void. I mean, it, it's an interesting mm. novel that one. Um, I think it probably oh, sure. does, yeah. does perhaps works better in, in on on the stage than it perhaps does it in on the on the page, perhaps. Like, mm. I'd like to come in with something else. Can yeah, I do? do? That? Yeah, yeah. It's <clears throat> one. Uh, I was I was um, thinking about Schopenhauer and uh, and Plato and this discussion about with the, the both of them, and when um when Murdoch talks about recollection connected with Plato and uh, the dialogue may not <clears throat> also made me thought about um, nuns and soldiers with Daisy Barrett uh, when she says to Tim Reed uh, it's a very funny novel in a way uh, she says to Tim Reed that <clears throat> music is like chess it's all there beforehand all you do is find it and then Tim answers, yes, that was exactly what he felt about painting. <laughs> uh, I think that this resonates very well with Murdoch's own philosophical comment in On God and Good, where she says, and this is one of the best quotes, I think, when she says, Rilke said of his son that he did not paint, I like it. He painted, there it is. Yeah, yeah. This is not easy and requires it art and morals a discipline. So maybe one could say that it's the same difference hmm, between listening to a romantic symphony, Tchaikovsky, Beethoven or something, and some more difficult so-called modern music. Have you thought about that, Gillian? Difference between a great symphony or mm. maybe a silly pop song compared to serious jazz, you know? Yeah, yeah. Is there can we talk about this difference in her nose between I like it oh, and gee. there it is? Um, kind of thought, come at it at that, at that way. There's, there's music that we, that, that people would sing together. But I mean, it's interesting that, um, you know, that when a, a woman gives up music, mm -hmm. a serious music career, and that happens to several women in the novels, Mm -hmm. um, there are three in Jackson's Dilemma alone who give up music when yeah. they get married. And her mother, in fact, gave up her mm -hmm. apparently promising operatic career when she, when she married. But, um, and then um, continued singing all her life in an amateur way. But uh, this is Murdoch's saying she, um, she never realised the potential of that great voice. So she gave mm -hmm. up serious operatic singing um and but she used to you know sing the old popular songs around the piano and that that also happened in um in jackson's dilemma they the 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 um you know one of the the mothers or wives had to give up the you know the the thing the music that she loved the serious music she loved for the sake of the family harmony where they could sing Think, you know, sing things around the piano. And, and maybe, um, maybe there's a difference here too between a composer and a listener? Oh, a, a, yes. Yes? Yes. I don't think, I think we've got any... I don't think there are any composers. Apart no, from Christopher. And Marcus in, uh, Waller, who liked to compose music. But Christopher, yes, he's a composer. Yeah. Yeah, Christopher yes. is a composer. And... And and the the other thing is that Tom uh, Tom McCaffrey thinks that Emma Emma Emmanuel Scarlett Taylor should be able to compose because he's such a good and now Emma Emma Emmanuel Scarlett yeah, Taylor, Scarlet Taylor yeah. he is the um, he as far as I can think is the only sort of fairly major character who's a serious singer in any of the novels. Um, and he sings music for a while, and that stops yes. the yes. It's a wonderful, wonderful yes. scene where he, he stops that sort of yeah. riotous party just by singing mm. 
uh, you know, singing unaccompanied. He just enchants them. Yes, yes, um, that's wonderful. Singing that wonderful song by Purcell. Yeah. Um, and and but but uh, you know the whole that whole interior um, uh, sort of conversation that Emma has about whether he can continue to be a singer, hmm. whether he can continue to devote what he needs to to his art and also carry on to be a historian a, a, a historian which is yeah. you know what he feels is his vocation but he mm. he's torn throughout the whole novel he's torn between these two he says he he must give up singing and then he says but never to sing again really yeah. can I can I how can I how can I stop this you know because he doesn't not... want to sing if he if it is not seriously it must be his whole yes. life i think he, he thinks. Yeah. yeah but um but in the end he he becomes he becomes sort of reconciled to the fact that he he can do both um it may perhaps be less than perfect but he can still you know not he doesn't have to abandon no. it completely then then his um, teacher has gone <laughs> yeah once his teacher has gone then he can yeah <laughs> then he can um, enjoy hmm. enjoy music i think probably in, yeah. in a more relaxed way perhaps but he's not that sort of guy i mean he's a he's a pretty intense and serious chap so yes um so. yeah <laughs> If I may, I'd like yeah. to complicate it a little more, this discussion between, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, th those, those two kind of um, states that you suggested, Ellen, uh, between I like it and there it is. I'd also like to yeah. add in about um, this, this idea of um, natural sound um, coming just out of nature. And not mm -hmm. just there it is, but it, it's just, a, you know, it, it, there's even no thought behind it at all. I think particularly mm -hmm. of the, the bird song in the bell, Gillian. Mm. Um, and mm. I'm sure there are other images as well. For the, the bird song in the bell, when when Dora hears that on the telephone, and that one of the major sort of change, it, it it prompts one of the major changes in the course. And we get the, mm. the off discussed. We've off discussed it on the on the podcast actually. The, the scene in the National Gallery with art. So this this singing and art, how mm. important it is. Is that? And I'm trying to think of other novels where that appears. But it, it's it's important that sort of natural sound comes comes through in the novels as well, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Oh yes, I mean there's there's the natural sounds, um, yes, particular particularly bird song. Um, there are ambient sounds of you know of whatever of of, of traffic of um, mm. you know um, rain um, and uh, and there's also silence, which is incredibly important. Mm. Um, this the the quality of silences is just you know is it is just it, it's sort of the 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 number of different adjectives that are, that are attached to the word silence is quite mm. mind boggling. And really, I was you know, I was also trying to count the sentence. There was a moment moment's silence. It's very <laughs> frequent. It's very frequent. Yes. And of course, it's used yes. in both um, religious and secular terms as well, silence, isn't it? Oh, yeah, mm. absolutely. Yes. Yeah, she makes that distinction, um, I think, quite often. But there's, a, but it's often, even not, even if not, you know, explicitly religious, it can, be, it can have a sort of spiritual side. Yeah. Um, re re resonance, which, you know, that seems a little bit um, <laughs> of an oxymoron, but um and, and the other thing, of course, is voices, the voices of her characters. You know, it's not just what they look like. It's what mm. they sound like. You know, think of uh, Thomas Caspell in, in um, The Good Apprentice. You know, his, his Edinburgh, his sort of, um, his slightly prissy Ed Edinburgh um, voice. And, um, and then, you know, you can hear it in... in uh, in Jake, in Under the Net, you can kind of hear his Irish lilt, can't you? Oh, yeah. If you, if you listen. Yeah. And, and so, uh, and of course, in, you know, in, in various of the novels, there's, um, you know, that, that, that comes through. And, 
you know, Nan in the sandcastle is, is always sort of nagging that 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 rather unpleasant um, nagging voice. Whereas, you know, other and Bloodyard is stammering. Yes, Bloodyard when he's stammering, giving his right. lecture. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm. And so the, the 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 ways the way people sound is is also you know quite A commonly described as yeah. important. Yeah. Mm. I think you found so many interesting things. It's yeah, really but, incredible. But it, but, but, Looking forward to the uh, looking looking forward to, for the book coming the out. Book, yes. Well, as we as we approach the end of the podcast, I, I wonder if we could have some some final thoughts from both of you about uh, yeah, conclusions about how sound, music, singing, etc., are, are working in the novels and what people should look for. And perhaps you could both mention one um, essay or novel that um, our listeners should be picking up and, and looking particularly for um, the singing or the music. Um, it, it, it may even be one that they've read before, but perhaps they ought to look at it again um, with new eyes. Um, Ellen, let's start with you. Okay, if I should pick one, I would pick The Black Prince, <clears throat> because I think it's so interesting to, to see the many ways that Bradley Pearson um, reacts uh, to different sorts of music and the way it is mentioned there I think it's uh, and, and the discussion at the end that we have been into that the art form not a pyramid but a circle and he says uh, they are the defensive outer barriers of language whose elaboration is a condition of all simpler modes of communication I mean that's pure philosophy for me it's yes. just yeah. something in a novel and music points to silence again an image which Bradley used uh, I think it's so many nice things to to look into there I would recommend the Black Prince yeah it's it's probably the best isn't it um but anyway that's, just, that's probably that's just me <laughs> no it, it's a wonderful novel as you say there's there's, there's so much richness in it not of you know mm. even beyond the music and the singing Gillian how about you yeah well, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think just listen to the novel, whichever one you're reading, listen to it. Um, but, um, you know, the one thing that, I, you know, I think as a singer, you, you know, one's, one is one's own musical instrument and, and, and Murdoch understands exactly what that means to the singer. Um, it can mean really terrible conflict if one might have to stop singing like Emma mm. or sublime happiness when one feels one's doing it well, as Emma does, you know, quite often. Um, she also understands what Charles Araby cruelly points out, you know, that one being one's own instrument means that one longs for acknowledgement and praise. You have to have a listener and that can make you seem vain or perhaps be vain. Um, for many other characters, singing is a less intense experience, an uncomplicated joy, but then again, it can evoke uncomfortable echoes from the past that's Mary Clothier in The Nice and the Good is, uh, The Nice and the Good is, is, is a very interesting um, novel for, for music. Mm. Um, and then, but then in, of course, Message to the Planet, it kind of becomes an instrument of hidden power wielded by Gildas Hearn. But um, this wonderful um, quote from the philosopher's pupil from Emmanuel um, that, Singing is the point at which flesh and spirit yeah. most joyfully meet. Mm. Um, and it's an undeniably essential and fundamental human activity. Um, and singing to an audience is an act of direct and explicit communication. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and you, and you face your audience. Unlike other musicians, you face your audience um, um, spirit and matter, flesh and spirit combine to express and to communicate emotions and stories, sorrow and delight, love, pain, nostalgia and hope with face and voice. And Murdoch knows this and when her characters sing or hear others sing, they are participating in this human act mm. of communication. Um, it can be accepted or rejected, enjoyed or deprecated, but it's never, never insignificant. So that's what I would say. So listen to the novels. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> the music. 
the, the philosophers people the, the, the two you majorly picked up on there the philosophers people and the nice and the good are two of her most sensual novels as well and mm. how much how closely i was just thinking there when you were, when you were speaking how closely the music and the singing align with the body and the body moving through mm. the space mm. that it's in um yeah and, image, and of course connected with with the, the water image as well it's uh, yes. yeah two, two beautiful novels yes yes well, thank you so much, both of you, for being on. I, I think I should mention to your to our our listeners that uh, Gillian's book is uh, still um, undergoing uh, revision and work, and, and hopefully um, we'll we'll see the light of day and be published um, in the near future. If you are listening and you haven't got it, there is one uh, one book uh, that was published quite a long time in 1991 by Darlene Mettler on um, musical illusion and imagery in the novels of Iris Murdoch um, that you can pick up um, secondhand quite cheaply. So if you want, to, if you if you just can't wait. Um, for Gillian's book to come out and you need something uh, to read that has some of these um, some of these uh, elements in it then um, perhaps that would be um, one to pick up but it's been wonderful and I think um, just listening that this this podcast is now has the record for the number of novels that's, that have been mentioned I think we've covered at least, <laughs> at least 15 so it's been a, it's been a wonderful uh, in, you know in, to a greater or lesser extent so it's been a, it's been a wonderful journey uh, mm. to go on with you um, over the past hour or so to um, to hear your thoughts so um, my thanks to uh, to Julian uh, Dooley and my thanks to Ellen Svenby for uh, being with me today to talk about um, music, singing and sound in Murdoch's novels. And my thanks to you all for listening. Thank you, Boris. Great to be here.